today. Would you open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4? I'm going to start how I always start our services here at Summit Bible Church, and that is by reading the passage. So Galatians 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7. Galatians 4, 1 to 7. Word of God reads, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Well, we all have the cry of William Wallace in our hearts. Freedom. We all want freedom. Kids, you want freedom, don't you? I know you do. You want the freedom to eat whatever you want, whenever you want. Maybe Chick-fil-A every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That sound good? No. No. Well, we know the more sophisticated palate in the room. Adults, we we love our freedom, don't we? We live in the United States of America. We have freedoms that we enjoy. Freedoms of speech, freedom of religion, the reason we're able to gather here today. And you would support the troops who fight for our freedom. We all want freedom. I think that's a God-given desire placed in our hearts And what's greater than the freedoms of living within the United States of America is the freedom that we receive in Christmas. See, in Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Jesus, that he was born, that he came down to this earth to save sinners. And in Christmas, Jesus came to set us free. And that's what this passage declares to us, the freedom we have in Christ, through Christmas. You need to know something though. This freedom came at a great cost. But God was willing to pay that cost. And willing to do that for our salvation. So that's what we're going to look at Galatians 4. And we just have two points today. You can follow along in the outline. The first is that we were slaves before Christmas. We were slaves before Christmas. Paul starts with an illustration A very practical one. In essence, here's the point. You don't give a young child too much freedom and too much money. They won't know what to do with it. I mean, take, for example, the prodigal son. What does the prodigal son do with his freedom and his dad's inheritance? He goes and spoils it, spends it all, and then ends up eating food out of a pig trough. It did not go well. To give a man an immaturity 
too much freedom and money. What's the legal age for when you can apply for a credit card here today? 18. At least, you know, generally in society, we know that young children can't have too much freedom and too much money. That, that's what Paul is getting at here. Until, until the child matures, they live within boundaries. They live under law, in a sense. And in that way, a child in the house and a slave in the house is not much different. In that way, neither of them have freedom. They have others making the rules and setting the boundaries for them. That's what Paul's getting at with his very practical illustration in verses 1 and 2. And now, Paul relates that practical illustration to salvation history in verse 3. Look down at the passage. He says, in the same way, verse 3, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When Paul says we, he's talking about himself and the rest of Israel. And when he says they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, he's talking about Israel under the old covenant, under the law. Now, God gave the law to Israel. We see the law summed up in the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. You might know some of them. But the law could be even pulled together and and even more concise. Here's the essence of the law. Jesus told us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. So God gave this law to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And the law is good. It's not a bad thing. It is a good thing. It, It protected the people of Israel. It gave them boundaries for society and for living. Good boundaries. We don't want people going around stealing other people's goods. We don't want people going around murdering or killing others. The law is good. And it was placed as boundaries, as a rule set, a structure, an order, a system to keep everyone in check and to distinguish Israel from the rest of the world. Just like parents raising children, we want to give them good law, good boundaries, good rules for life that will set them up for success. But we know parents, at some point, they're going to need to make the decisions for themselves. We want to set up our children to live well with the freedom that they gain with maturity. And that's what God did. God gave Israel the law, these boundaries, this guide to protect them. But they misused the law. Instead of seeing as it a good guide, as good boundaries, they see it as a works-based system of religion. God never gave the law as a means by which someone can be saved. It was the law given to people of faith that trust God and would walk in his plan for their life. See, if you approach the law as a works-based system, as measures that you have to meet in order to please God, then you treat the law like it's a slave driver. It quickly becomes domineering in your life. And it takes over. And that is works-based religion. Works-based religion, virtually every religion outside of Christianity says this, if you can do enough good, 
if you could be good enough, then maybe you'll make it. Maybe God will, in exchange for your good, give you salvation. That's, in essence, the philosophy of works-based religion. Be good enough, and maybe you can be saved. Well, can you see how that philosophy can become a slave driver? What's good enough? How much good? How far do I have to go? How high do I have to climb? How much do my good things have to outweigh my bad things? And then you live your life like the hamster on the wheel. Just running and running and feeling like you're going nowhere. That philosophy, works-based religion, trying to earn your salvation is like, a, like slavery. It really is. You could ask Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he said this, I hoped that I might find peace with fasting, praying, and the vigils, and I miserably afflicted my body. But the more that I sweated it out, the less peace and tranquility that I felt. Works-based religion is an ongoing, unending pressure. It's slavery. Martin Luther was considered by others as the best monk according to Christian law. He was exemplary. Martin Luther probably lived a purer, quote-unquote, life than anybody in this room. He's better than you. And yet his goodness was not good enough. This is what else Martin Luther said. He said, then, bowed down by sorrow, I tortured myself with these thoughts. Look, I said to myself, you are still envious, you're still impatient, you're still passionate, and these works you do profit nothing, O oh, wretched man. That sound like freedom, or does that sound like slavery? See, works-based religion is enslaving. It's never good enough. You'll try, you'll work harder and harder to be the good person, to be perfect, but guess what? And you know this, your conscience bears witness, you're never good enough. None of us are perfect. And so when we treat the word of God or the law of God like a standard that we have to measure up to by our own merit, we're enslaved. We're slaves. Sin, by the way, is also a slave driver. Jesus says in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You know this to be true. We were all at one point slaves of sin. We had no power to stop sinning. We had no power to say no. One sin after another, our life snowballs. Our conscience condemns us. The more sins we commit. So here's the picture before Christmas. If you're trying to measure up, if you're trying to be good enough by your own merit, here's the picture. You're a slave. And you're in shackles. You're shackled to your addiction. You're shackled to the lust in your heart. You're shackled to the anger within you. You're shackled to the arrogance, the pride, the selfishness that motivates everything you do. And then works-based religion says, you see that mountain over there? Yeah, with its top above the clouds? Climb it in your shackles. And let me just stop you before you try. Listen to me this morning. 
Better men and women than you have tried and they have failed. We can never measure up. We can never be good enough. We can never climb that mountain to the peak with shackled in our own sin. We're slaves to sin and then we're slaves under a works-based system. We need a solution outside of ourselves for salvation. We need someone else to set us free. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. So we were slaves before Christmas, but about 2,000 years ago, God became a man at the right time so that we are sons because of Christmas. That's point two. So that we would be sons because of Christmas. There's three parts to this point, and they're simple. The son became a slave so that slaves become sons and sons become heirs. Okay? We'll walk through each of these points with the passage. First, the son became a slave. If you look at verse 4, the very first phrase, it says, when the fullness of time had come. Similar to how a father would choose a day for his child to go from childish things to mature things, to have freedom, God chose a specific time in history for his people to stop being treated like children and to be treated as freed sons and daughters. And that time is the same time that our calendar is oriented around. Some say, you know, God chose the time that he did because of the Roman Empire and the expanse of the Roman Empire, the Roman roads that went out all around the world. Perhaps because of the commonality of the Greek language that was used to write most of the scriptures. I don't know. That speculation, it, it seems right, but all we need to know is this. This was the right time. This is when God's calendar was marked. When Jesus became a man, when he was born, what we celebrate at Christmas. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Let's stop there. Isn't that amazing? See, God didn't send a prophet. Could have. He sent some before. God didn't send more animals to be sacrificed through the sacrificial system. Wider lambs or more spotless goats. I don't know. God didn't send a flood. He could have. He made a promise that he wouldn't. He didn't send a flood. He didn't judge the world, even though the world is still filled with sin. God sent his only begotten, his beloved son. Why? Why would God send his only begotten, his beloved son into this world? The most popular verse in the Bible tells you why. John 3.16. Why? For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. See, love is personal. Love is initiated by God. Love is displayed in the most magnificent way when God, holy God, sent his holy son to fix the problem. To be the solution that we needed to set us free. God sent his son. That's remarkable. And God sent this son born of a woman. Do you see that there? That simply 
means that God became a man. How many of you in this room were born of a woman? Every single person. (laughs) Right? Unless you're a clone and you were made in a lab. I don't know. But uh, you were born of a woman. That's that Jesus, he became a man. He became a human being. Flesh and bones. He was truly God and truly man. And this is significant. He needs to become a man because only a man could fulfill the requirements of the law. And only a perfect man could bear the penalty on behalf of other men who break it. So Jesus had to become a man, and he did. He didn't only become a man, but he was born under the law. He was born into and under the law of the old covenant. Jesus was circumcised. He went through all the rites and rituals. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Jesus was without sin. So he didn't stumble at one point. He didn't fail the law at one point. He was perfect. And so he did what you and I cannot do. He climbed the mountain. He was without sin. Perfect in his obedience to the will of God. He was truly a righteous man. And not only did he fulfill the requirements perfectly, but Jesus bore the penalty of the law vicariously. That word vicariously just means in the place of someone else. See, Jesus was without sin. But the scripture tells us he became sin so that you and I could have the righteousness of God through him. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was perfect. He didn't deserve the penalty, but he took it in our place vicariously. An illustration of this that I've used before, it's a moving illustration, a story of a king in his kingdom. Now, there's this ongoing problem in the king's kingdom. Someone was stealing personally from the king's treasury. They couldn't figure out who it was. So the king declared a law that whenever the thief was found, the thief would be declared guilty and he would receive 39 lashes. And so the decree went out to the kingdom. The guards went out in search for the perpetrator. And then lo and behold, a day later, they brought the thief before the throne of the king. Do you know who it was? It was his son. His son had been stealing from the treasury. So the the king was a just king. He was righteous. So he declared this, even my own son must be punished under the law. And so the lashing was scheduled for the next day. It would be in the public square, be seen by the whole kingdom. And so the next day, the kingdom gathers to the public square. Everybody's eyes are fixed on the sun who's barebacked, strapped to the pole in the middle of the public square. And the king is up on his throne overseeing the whole event. Now the guard, with the lash, with the whip, getting it ready, he steps forward toward the sun. And he lifts the whip. And then from the throne, the people hear, stop! Everybody looks at the king. The king takes off his crown. He lays aside his robe. He walks down from his throne towards the boy. He goes all the way up to the boy. He takes off his garments, bearing his back, and he hugs his son. 
And he turns around and he looks at the guard and he says, commence the lashing. The son takes the lashes, or sorry, the father takes the lashes for his son. That's a picture, friends, a small picture. Doesn't even do it justice, really, of what Jesus did for you and me. He was without sin. He didn't commit the crime, but he steps in and takes the penalty in our place. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. That's amazing love. The son became a slave, obeying the law perfectly. He gave himself as a sacrifice to bear the penalty in our place. Why? Why did Jesus do that? He loves us. Secondly, be so that the slaves would become sons. Here's the freedom we have in Christmas. Two big words you'll see in verse 5. To redeem and adoption. Let's understand these words. What does redeem mean? To redeem means to deliver or to buy out. In the context of slavery, it means to purchase the slave's freedom. And there's a price for redemption. There is a fee. And what was that price for God? It was his only son. I mean, could you imagine? Imagine yourself living in the 1800s and you're a slave. You come off the ship. You're brought to shore. You're in shackles, shackled to other slaves with you. And you're set before people for auction. Can you imagine how demeaning that is? How horrible? You're you're treated like property. In fact, they put value, monetary value to your head. And they start declaring prices. $50, $60, $70, assigning that value to your life. Treating you like not humans. And your greatest hope, your greatest hope, you're sitting there in shackles and you're, you're waiting for that number to sound and you're hoping that the highest bidder is a kind master. That's your greatest hope. You have no hope of freedom. You have no hope of being set free. You just hope for a kind master. Because you've heard of very cruel ones. And then, a similar illustration. Out of the silence from different numbers that are being called, you hear a man say, I will purchase that slave's freedom, and I'll give my son as the price. Could you imagine? The crowd looking at this man, and here he is with a strapping son, and the father is willing to give his son, and the son is willing to go and to be a slave and to die a slave for your freedom? That's amazing love. And that's exactly a small picture of exactly what God did for you. He sent his son to become a slave so that you, friend, a slave, could be set free. So that you could be set free, redeemed. Galatians 3.13, this is just a little earlier. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because of Christmas, you're free. The second word, adoption. Adoption. This is a relational word. In the Roman Empire, this meant to bring into the family another child of other biological parents. It's the same meaning that we see today. They have... They go from having no privileges, no rights, or no inheritance without parents, and then they are adopted, and they receive all those things from the new parents. 
This child who's adopted will receive every blessing as if he was born into that family. And because of Christmas, listen to this, you're not only set free, but you're called home. He purchases your freedom, and he grants you all the blessings of the son that he gave in exchange. This means, listen friends, that salvation is not just a transaction. It's a relationship. God didn't just pay the price for your freedom and walk away. He adopts you into his family. He he invites you into his home. He gives you a room. He puts your, your picture on the wall. And he calls you son or he calls you daughter. And the the passage tells us in verse 6 that he gives us his spirit, which cries out in our hearts, we call him Abba, Father. We have relationship with God. You have immediate access to the Father through Christ. You have the love, the affection, the protection, the security of the Heavenly Father in Christ. All that is his is yours. Because you are his son. You're his daughter. Isn't that amazing? You know, I don't know what kind of earthly father you have. You may have a really good one. Some of you in this room may not know your earthly father. You may not have a good earthly father. Or maybe Christmas is a tough time because you remember that you've lost your father. Listen, friends, you need to hear today that you have a great, merciful, loving, heavenly Father. He sent His own Son so that He can not only buy your freedom, but adopt you into His family. Would you enjoy your heavenly Father this Christmas? Would you thank Him for the gift that He gave through His Son, Jesus Christ? Because of Christmas, you're a son, you're a daughter. The son became a slave so that slaves could become sons. And get this, not just sons, but heirs. So that's the final point here. Sons become heirs. Are you expecting gifts this Christmas? The kids are like, yeah, all right, paying attention now, pastor. What did you want? What did you ask for? You probably asked for something good, and you might be expecting it. Moms, you looking out for a new kitchen appliance? I don't know. A new back rub, a massage chair? I've seen those in the displays. Those look nice. Dads, you might be looking more forward to the toys than the kids are. You all know, dads, you know, we like those Legos just as much as the kids do. I look forward to socks on Christmas because I always need them. I like the stocking stuffers. I'll take a new chapstick. That's helpful. I'll take some Altoids. That's helpful. I use those things. I like those. As you're thinking about gifts in Christmas, you need to remember, and I say this with sincerity, not as a bait and switch, far better than any gift you receive on Christmas, far better than any earthly possession that you can get, is the heavenly gift of salvation, and all the spiritual blessings that come with it. You are an heir. Do you know what heir means? It means you are the beneficiary. It means you're getting all the inheritance that your heavenly Father could give you. 
God promised Abraham a blessing in the Old Testament. The blessing for his people and a blessing to all the nations. As you read scripture, it continues to reveal aspects of this blessing. It talks about a kingdom. It talks about right relationship with God. It talks about a king, Jesus Christ. It talks about flourishing. It talks about eventually a day where God would be present with his people. It talks about the ultimate absence of evil, pain, curse, death, no more sickness, no more disease. A glorious day. Listen to these words. Just go up a little bit further in Galatians to verse 29 of chapter 3. It says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. By faith, heirs according to those promises. Christian, if you are a Christian here today, you believe in Christ, you've been redeemed from slavery to the law, from slavery to sin. You've been adopted into God's family and you, friend, are awaiting a glorious inheritance. You are richly blessed now in Christ and you have so much more to look forward to. The promised kingdom, the king, eternal flourishing, the visible presence of God, right relationship with God, the ultimate abolition of evil, pain, sickness, curse, sin, and death. Those promises don't just await Israel. They await you. By faith in Jesus Christ, you are heirs. Jesus told us that if he goes, he will prepare a place for us. He says, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Hebrews 11 says, as it is, these people of faith, they desired a better country. Better than a great America. Even more freedom and rich blessings than we get here today. A better country. That is the heavenly one. God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. An eternal city. I'm reading a book right now. It's called Grief Undone. It's a woman who wrote this book, uh, and her husband is going through stage four cancer. And one of the truths that strikes me as I read this book is how much this woman talks about heaven. Heaven is on her mind as she looks at death. Heaven should be on our mind every day, Christian, because it's so much better than here. We need to have thoughts of a better country, a richer inheritance, a better land, a greater king, true flourishing, true happiness. A kingdom that is not of this world. A kingdom prepared for us that's from heaven. We need to look back and remember the reason for the season. The Christ and Christmas. Christ must. More more Christ. And we also need to look forward to the rich inheritance ahead of us, Christian. Because if you're in Christ, that's what awaits you. The Son purchased it for you. By his perfect life and his sacrifice and his resurrection. He did all the work. And he just asks of you to believe. To receive him by faith. That's all we did, if anything. And that faith was a gift too. 
You know, maybe some of you in this room don't, you're not a son. You're not an heir, but you're still a slave and you live like one. You're enslaved to your sin. You're enslaved to the philosophy that you can earn your own salvation by your good works. In the words of Harriet Tubman, be free or die. Run from that slavery to sin. Run from the enslaving principles of a works-based salvation and trust in Christ. Receive him by faith. Look to him and him alone for salvation. He lived the perfect life you couldn't live. He died on the cross in your place and he rose again from the dead. Surrender yourself and surrender to Christ. Receive him today by faith. Trust in him for salvation and you, friend, could be free. You'll be free indeed. And if you are in Christ, Christian, just a reminder, remember why. Remember the price he paid for your salvation. And celebrate that this Christmas. Celebrate the son who came to make you a son. Who became a slave so that you as slave could be set free and be an heir in him. And if you are free, live free. Don't go back to slavery to sin. Don't go back to the slavery to the works-based religious system. Live free. Live for God, your heavenly Father. Don't go back. Be free. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I ask that you would do what only you can do, which is to open the eyes of of these people here, to open their hearts to your truth, that they would receive the true gift of Christmas, which is Jesus Christ, who came to set us free. God, I pray that you might save even some today. You'd cause them to turn from their sin, to repent and believe, and trust Christ for freedom. God, I pray for those of us who are in Christ, that we remember our standing. We remember who we are because of him. We're sons and daughters. We can call you our heavenly father. We can have a relationship with you. And not just the spirit, all the spiritual blessings that come with salvation here that we experience in this life, but all the spiritual blessings that await us in heaven. Help us to remember heaven. Help us to look forward to that day when we receive the great inheritance. We walk into that kingdom. We see you face to face. Pray that that truth would light our jets and that that would set us aflame to live for Christ, to surrender all in this life and treasure and love him above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.